Hello, welcome to Film Walk. This is Glenn. I'm here with Daniel. Hello. And tonight, for the 200th episode of the Film Walk podcast, we are doing something pretty normal. Uh, we had, we definitely pondered doing another uh, another selection of big blind spots for us, old classic movies, but we decided for this 200th episode, we were going to do a trio of international selections, because the one thing we lamented on our last episode was that our scope had just gotten a little bit narrower this year, because we just haven't done as many episodes uh, this year. So, we are checking out a trio of new films that have dropped on VOD and premium VOD over the last few weeks, and those films, we have two of them in French, one of them in Farsi, and uh, they are, respectively, Athena on Netflix, Careless Crime, which is available for rental on Apple TV Plus and Amazon Prime Video, and Saloom, which is currently streaming on Shudder. And first, we will get started with the movie Athena. Mon frère est décédé à 0h30 cette nuit. Pour la mémoire d'Idir, les coupables seront traduits en justice. Je vous demanderai de rester calme. Il est inadmissible d'imaginer que les policiers protègent leurs collègues et prétendent ne pas savoir qui a fait ça dans ce quartier d'Athéna où tout le monde se connaît. from the trailer of Athena, an explosive and revolutionary new film from director Romain Gavra, which is now streaming on Netflix. It features the adult brothers of a 13-year-old boy, Adir, who was killed last night in a housing estate or a housing project in Paris, and there is an ongoing riot and civil insurrection going on in and around this uh, estate, demanding that the police who murdered this child be brought to justice. The movie begins with a literal bang as what as their oldest brother, Abdel, actually he might not be their oldest brother, I believe Mokhtar is, is older, uh, as one of their older brothers, Abdel, who is a uh, soldier who has fought for the nation of France in unspecified battles abroad, is giving a press conference with the police and vowing that a full investigation will occur and that the uh, that the police or possibly not police who killed their brother Adir will be brought to justice. And before that press conference can conclude, Abdel's brother Kareem arrives, also the brother to the late Adir, and chucks a Molotov cocktail into the front of the crowd, which kicks off a non-stop and uninterrupted camera shot and heist, in which the police station is ransacked, a safe is hoisted onto a police van and driven back home to the housing project of Athena, with dirt bikes trailing French flags and hooting and hollering rioters, uh, following them every which way back to what is an ongoing police barricade situation and ongoing civil unrest at that location. And uh, they have simple and uncomplicated demands. They demand justice, and they are prepared to fuck shit up to get it. That is where we begin at the onset of this movie, and it is maybe an eight or nine minute uninterrupted shot establishing exactly how all how and where all of this is happening. And uh, Daniel, I seem to recall you saw this movie before I did, and the first thing you texted me about it was that the soundtrack was what did you say? I can't recall what I said specifically, but it's. Uh, I think you said it was fucking sick or something similar to that. Yeah, it was definitely very off the cuff. Uh, it, it, the soundtrack's fantastic throughout this film. 
It was, yeah, the score is done by a band called Generation. That's Generation with an eight, uh, who is, which I guess is the stage name for a French musician named Benoit Heights, uh, also known as Serkin. Um, and he is basically an EMI, uh, an EMI DJ and composer. And it, it's really, I mean, the soundtrack to this movie is epic. Uh, it involves these sort of Greek choruses, kind of uh, kind of howling voices that like they can't believe the scale and devastation of what is happening here, and it it just rips. It absolutely rips, just like this film is ripping along from one action set piece to the next. Daniel, what did you think of this film? Oh, it was so nice to see a movie about Chop. I miss Chop. Wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember that time that Antifa burned the entirety of Seattle to the ground, or so? A like roughly 40% of America believes happened back in 2020. I do. I was there and we rebuilt just like the city of Chicago. We rebuilt on the, on the same city on the rubble that was left behind. Yes, Republicans are fucking stupid, aren't they, Daniel? But uh, we do get a, a taste of that uh, that latent creeping fascism at one point in the basement of this housing uh, project, where Mokhtar, who is one of the one of these brothers who has has a little side hustle of his own, is engaged in a little a little side project to the uh, to the riot at hand. And down in the basement, we hear him listening to a bit of right wing talk radio. And sure enough, these fucking layabout uh, people across the country are talking about sending in the army to restore order. Fuck up these protesters and sweep them off the streets and shove them in, bulldoze them into a mass grave, which is always the subtext of anyone's aggressive tilt toward getting undesirables off of their fucking television. Well, you know, Glenn, and, what could have happened was you don't need to send the entire French military, you know, to, you know, to the compound of Athena. They would immediately surrender. Well, you just got to send uh, Rama from the raid. He would have cleaned that whole thing up in uh, 20 minutes. That is true, yeah. This definitely felt like the raid, maybe from another perspective here. I did a 10 years ago retrospective on the raid, and I, I basically had to grapple with the fact that the the compelling power of the police state that is on display in that film is never really examined in any meaningful way. It's just kind of taken for granted that everyone, or almost everyone, in this poor tenement apartment that is the backdrop for this movie basically is either a criminal or otherwise involved in criminality and pretty much deserves what's happening. Anybody who is, who is determined to stay out of trouble is just going to stay in their apartment and let the good guys do their job. And that is very much not what is going on here. First, this feels like a real place where real people live. It feels like most of the people involved are absolutely terrified and just trying to stay safe. And also, it feels like the rioters have a severely legitimate grievance here. A 13-year-old boy was kicked to death by by what seemed to be cops in uniform. Cops in uniform who have not answered for their behavior in any way, have not been identified, have not been presented, have not given any explanation for their behavior at all. And the police are not giving any answers either. They think, oh, maybe these weren't cops. Maybe these were far-right uh, agitators, accelerationists, who whose goal was exactly this. They wanted to kick off this uh, this horrific uh, riot. And, of course, we have parallels to that in real life. During the riots following George Floyd's murder by by police, uh, there was that police station that was set on fire up in uh, up in Michigan. And that turned out to be. Uh, that turned out to be far right agitators that had done that had done that. Um, they had, or rather, it was Minnesota, not Michigan. That's a big faux pas mis- mixing those two states. I, I know, I'm terribly sorry, but what? But uh, it turned out to be a far right agitator who was, su- who was subsequently arrested and charged with a terrorist act for bombing, firebombing this police station. But his work had already been done. He had already spread this narrative that that you know th- these these leftist protesters had turned on the police and had you know were burning the police to the ground and. And that gave the police free reign to do what cops do, which is exact 
un- unrelenting brutality upon leftist protesters. And that is definitely what we see in this film. But these protesters are very well prepared and they they are striking back immediately and with unrelenting brutality. And it is really something to see. Yeah, I thought the cinematography was quite quite something in this film. Uh, the, the, the opening shot where the camera just follows you for 10 minutes and you see the heist and you see the attack on the police station, that's probably my favorite stretch of the film. Uh, I think I sex the tone and I, I, I was definitely enthralled by that entire entire set piece i thought the characters were a little meh you know a little little basic but that's fine that wasn't the point you know like can you imagine what family dinner looks like between karim you know Mokhtar and abdel with that with their mother i'm the leftist i'm the i you know i'm the weapons trafficker i'm the good you know police officer and that's those are our characters did you get the vibe that sebastian is their brother or is he just their friend that they know oh he's just uh, nuts. only has two modes on or off <laughs> i can't know what his deal was at first i was like oh he's the uh he's the disabled guy that lives on the compound they're just trying to keep him safe and no no he's actually a crazy crazy person <laughs> yeah one of the things the first thing we learn about sebastian is that he is on a terrorist watch list for unspecified actions in syria now we don't know what he we don't know who he is we don't know what he's done we don't know how we don't know if what he did was sympathetic i mean fighting in a war in syria may well get you on a watch list depending on which side you fought for and what you did there but that said you know, the Syrian war was a gigantic clusterfuck and lots of people end up on watch lists whether they belong there or not. So I definitely took Sebastian as an absolute wild card. And that is how the movie treats him as well. Because when we first see him, he is wearing headphones and he is fucking gardening. He is ignoring the riot that is happening all around him and everybody is leaving him the fuck alone, which gives you an immediate idea of how everybody regards him, which is as a wild card. This guy, we don't know what he's going to do, but if he does... It's going to be big, whatever it is. Yeah, don't take off his headphones. <laughs> yeah, never mess with his music, dude. Just just let him let him listen, let him relax, let him garden. Um, we also have this character, Jerome, who is a cop. And uh, we initially only see him identified as 2A. Uh, that's an easier way to keep track of who's, uh, of, of who's who among the cops. They all have letters and numbers uh, on the back of their police. Isn't that car. helpful? And, and uh, Jerome is 2A, which I, I just called him Second Amendment. I figured he was going to shoot somebody. But uh, uh, but yeah, he is, to the extent that there is a sympathetic police presence in this film, he's the guy who is basically a normal cop. We haven't seen him do anything unforgivable, but we do see him doing a lot of things that the other cops are doing, including beating down protesters. But they're also actively being attacked by those protesters. At yeah, it was time, a male. So. Yeah, it's it's one of these things where you're just like, okay, this guy is nobody in particular. He is just a guy. He's a cop. He's got kids at home. But we're not meant to... I, I got the feeling that he was supposed to be basically a neutral party. He was somebody that we were supposed to regard as neither sympathetic nor non-sympathetic. And basically anybody's prior attitude about police was going to inform how they regard this character as the movie goes on. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I actually took him as uh, he's supposed to be the audience standing in this conflict. So he he's us going into this compound and just reacting and trying to just save himself and get through it. That's how I took him. That's an interesting assumption, and it's not an unreasonable one because so much of police media, A, casts the cops as the role of protagonist and hero, and B, presumptively assumes that the audience is going to be on the cops' side in all situations. And going into a movie like this where that sympathy is based on an assumption that the 
the bad guys they're chasing are usually one-dimensional criminals without any real justification for what they're doing is somewhat absent in this film because we begin with the justification we begin with the anger we begin with the anger from an acute source and we begin with and uh, we begin with specific demands that they are making and that somewhat complicates this. I think you're, you're quite right to bring up the Raid Redemption in, uh, as a companion piece to this film because this film reminded me quite a lot of the Raid, stylistically and tonally, but it really feels like it's coming at it from a different perspective. Well, well sure, and again, Rama would have cleaned out that rat's nest in 20 minutes, and it would have been a great 20, 30-minute movie. Yeah, I, I think... I think perspective was interesting. Uh, like we, we definitely do have sympathy towards uh, Kareem, even though I don't buy that this all happened overnight. Like this seemed like a compound that was developed, over, like it already existed, and then the murder happened, and then they just radicalized more. Well, hey, if there's one thing that France can do quickly, it's erect barricades and get and start. No, I get that. I, I like while I understand that historically, it, it felt like that whole compound was just so dialed in to being a defensive fort. It didn't make any sense to me that that was like a 24-hour period. Yeah, they did a very good job of establishing early on that this was an ongoing situation and shit was already hitting the fan before this press conference at the beginning. And Kareem being somewhat sympathetic, the movie makes some bold choices with him because what he does, chucking a Molotov cocktail into the front of a crowd of people, is a horrific act and could easily have severely and permanently injured lots of people at that location, including just members of the press, um, as well as the, like he, he is an absolutely brutal figure. He is, he is doing dangerous things uh, from the, from the outset here. And, but I don't think that he is ever presented as an unequivocal villain. He is certainly he's certainly the one that is the biggest uh, wild card until we meet Sebastian. Uh, but he's certainly and he and he's certainly the one who is driving the plot the most at the beginning um, until Abdel gets his piece. But uh, I, th- I think that the movie gives that character depth through his actions and through how his actions shift over the course of this. We get exposition as to the prior relationship between these brothers once they finally interact with each other. But prior to that, we can only infer who they are from what they do in this extraordinary situation. Um, Abdel's relationship with the cops is quite interesting as well, because he's not a cop himself, but he certainly acts like one over the course of the film at different times. Well, he even gets arrested, and then the, the police apologize for arresting him. Yeah, they're like, we're not sorry we arrested all those other people. Like, they straight up kettle an entire crowd full of people who are, I believe at that moment, not rioting, not doing anything. Like, they're unarmed, they're just trying to escape. And the cops are like, aha, we've got some of you. Yeah, that's pretty much exactly how it happened. But keep in mind, like, the cops have already been under, under attack a few times since they arrived at the compound. So they definitely were, have, uh, they had a key, uh, trigger finger. Well, that's always the excuse they use, isn't it? I mean, uh, they were, they were just, uh, I mean, any cop movie that we're reviewing, I can just look back to the last week of, of police news stories and find some horrific, stupid thing that they did, uh, where they were supposed to help somebody. Instead, they shot them. Somebody called 911 oh, for and sure. the cops showed up to murder them. <laughs> like it's dial a murder. And don't get me wrong. Well, I'm not, I'm not pro police, but what I am saying is like, this is a war zone. This movie's a war, and I'm not going to take it like in the same um, perspective as you know someone walked down the street and, and the cops attacked them. Like the cops were there to 
break up the barricades and the the Athenians were there to defend the barricades and bring the cops to justice. It was an open conflict. Yeah, at one point we see the cops uh, storming in and uh, we hear that their plan is to weaken the barricades over the course of the day in order to attack that night. And when they attack, they form a fucking Roman testudo with their riot shields. And I won't say exactly what is happening in this shot, but it is one of the most beautiful shots in the entire movie as the compound en masse is responding to this police incursion. And it's all, I think it's almost fair to say this is not a spoiler because there are times when the police have the upper hand and there are times when the when the protesters have the upper hand and that very much swings back and forth over the course of this movie. And we are often just following one or two people, but it really gives you a sense that, like you say, this is a war. This is ongoing and there are multiple theaters of this war happening at, a, at any given time, even if we're only seeing one little piece of it. It really feels like that one battle sequence in the movie Children of Men, which lasted maybe eight or nine minutes toward the end of that movie, uh, but there, in insofar as there's just this massive thing happening with all of these people, um, I'm reminded of something that you said about Lawrence of Arabia, which is, I just can't believe this many people all showed up here to make a movie like this. That was a feeling that I had watching this movie. And I'm sure there was trickery involved here. I'm sure there were visual effects involved here, but I was not thinking that for a moment watching this film. I was thinking, good lord, how did they stage all of this? How did they have this many people involved? How could they possibly manage all of this through multiple interconnected shots that have the seams between them hidden so perfectly? I mean, it really is a masterpiece at this kind of storytelling. Yeah, you bring up a good point. It did, it did have the epicness of Lawrence of Arabia with some of those shots, for sure. Because there was, there was like, in some cases, 50 to 100 people doing something at the same time. And it wasn't like a, a CGI battle, like a Lord of the Rings style. Like there's like actually one actor, and everyone else is computer generated. Mad Max Fury Road was another one that came to mind, just because of how elaborate the set pieces were and how many different people were doing different things. And what these people are doing is dangerous because, of course. What's being presented is these are just a bunch of individual actors all doing shit. But what's actually happening to make this film is a beautifully choreographed dance that has to keep every single person in it safe as pyrotechnics are going off, as stunts are being performed. It is absolutely nuts that this movie managed to get made, and it is a real cinematic accomplishment. There's a scene early on where uh, Karim is just walking, like, as the charismatic leader, he's walking and, and around the compound and giving orders, and there's just all sorts of stuff happening around him, at, like things exploding, like, you know, orders being shouted, like people on you know motorcycle bikes, like, flying in and out. And it's riveting, <laughs> yeah. uh, and and the stage, like like to your point, like the staging all of that, and, and getting everyone to coordinate and choreograph all of that must have been a lot of work. Oh, absolutely. Uh, two shout-outs I wanted to give here. Matthias Bukhard, who did the cinematography, and Sharifi Akram Mohammed Yasser, who edited this film, which must have been a real challenge, uh, just trying to get all of the all i mean the the sound mixing alone on this film must have been complex of course there were many other people involved in that as well but just to give that sense that all these things are happening simultaneously but also give the audience the ability to follow what is going on with whatever character we are following through that action at any, at any given time I mean, it's it's really quite impressive how coherent and how physically coherent this movie manages to be you always know where you are in the compound you always know where you're going and what you're doing and what the character is trying to accomplish and then you just get to see it play out in the most insane way possible. Yeah, I think uh, so much in the movie is an achievement. Maybe not necessarily the plot, 
<laughs> but everything around the plot is fantastic. Well, I think we, we could get into spoilers in this film, and I think that uh, we do need to talk about the ending of the film, so we probably should. But I, I think it's fair to say that this story feels like something that I'm watching on the news. And to that extent, I was giving the plot line a bit of a pass because I, I did not expect that it could possibly end uh, in any conclusive sort of way. Like, eventually this stalemate, this siege has to end. Eventually the police are going to break in there. They're going to arrest whoever they can arrest. And some of our heroes might escape. Some of them might not. Some of them might not be heroes by the end. Uh, some of them might be villains by the end. It's, it's really just impossible to say where your sympathies are going to lie over the course of this. But you know two things. You know this situation cannot last because eventually they're going to run out of refrigerators to chuck at the cops. And two, you, and as well as food, <laughs> probably for the same reason. Uh, and two... You know that this is not going to be the end of this. It's not going to be the end of a militarized police state. It's not going to be the end of, you know, that murdered child's killers brought to justice. It's not going to be the end of police brutality inflicted on people in marginalized communities. And that is very much the story of this film. It is the power of the state being brought to bear on this situation that is itself a protest about the power of the state being misused. And like with George Floyd, the police proved the point of the protesters over and over over and over again and that is what we see in this film and that is what we saw play out in real life but some people saw those same events happen and came to com the complete opposite conclusion and just said hey let's let's take all these uh, all these agitators and just shove them out of the way the only problem with that is that Karim throws a Molotov cocktail at the news conference <laughs> he's inviting the chaos like he wants it to some degree, the question of whether it was far-right agitators that spurred this uh, on or not doesn't matter. The escalation is the point. Him chucking in a Molotov cocktail is not the beginning of violence, but it's certainly not going to be the end of it. I was surprised that the police didn't use drones at all. It seemed like that got to be something they could use. Maybe that's an American thing. I don't know. Yeah, drones and uh, what are those things? Stingrays where they intercept cell phone transmissions. We, we don't know everything that's going on in there, but uh, uh, we certainly don't know everything that's going on with the police response. We just see the people on the inside doing doing what they can to try and figure these things out. I actually liked one detail here that Mokhtar, who is, uh, who is another one of the brothers who uh, is involved in his little side project, what we immediately learn about him is that he's got some bent cops on his payroll. And some of those cops are right outside, uh, and he's he's prepared to try and find an alternative way out with the help of his corrupt cops. The movie introduces police corruption as an element here from the very beginning. And of course, we're meant to question the police at the beginning of this film, because as far as we know, some of them might have murdered a child. But all we hear over and over from them is, one, we don't know who it was, and two, we're not sure it was cops. Yeah. It's one of those things where uh, you just have to... Uh watch the film play out and uh, root for who you want to root for. I was rooting for Mokdar, the uh, weapons uh, trafficker. He seemed like he was an even-keeled fella. His uh, his goals were certainly the most grounded, and uh, no pun intended, and uh, certainly seemed like the most likely to be accomplished. He had some very specific things he was looking to do. So, all right, well, Daniel, should we go ahead and get into spoilers? I think we should. All right. Well, uh, Athena is streaming on Netflix, and I think that is a hearty recommendation from both of us. Is that right, Daniel? I would say fairly hearty. Yeah. All right. 
Well, you can check out uh, Athena on Netflix, and we definitely uh, suggest you do. But I, I, we are going to go ahead and get into spoilers here. But this is a movie that is very much about an ongoing vibe and really just an ongoing action thrill ride as uh, as you just watch this this horrific situation play out. And it is really quite a spectacle to see. Now, from here on out, spoilers for now from here on out, spoilers for Athena. So Daniel, I got into this on Twitter a little bit because uh, I saw I saw somebody on Twitter who said that they thought that Athena was a great movie until the very final scene, which threw out all the goodwill that that movie had generated in favor of an ending that ultimately exonerates the police of having caused this crime in the first place. I am curious if you agree with that interpretation of the final scene. A little bit. It felt like a cop out. Uh-huh. Well, let's let's. What exactly happened in the final scene? As as you saw it, what happened? Uh, the revelation was that the the people perpetrators behind the murder of that child uh, were far right agitators who burned their police. Like they had confiscated, or maybe they were police officers that also worked for this far right organization. I'm thinking Le Pen people, and <laughs> and they uh, burned their clothes at the end to conceal their crime because they were on. They were photographed or, or video, I should say, uh, videotaped killing this kid. Maybe they they videotaped it themselves. I don't recall, but basically, it, it kind of made the the movie seem like the cops weren't necessarily the perpetrators of the murder. That it was another group and guys of police officers. Um, it's unclear as to whether or not they were actually police officers that were also part of this organization. But it kind of felt a little bit of a cop out, considering. Uh, the, how the movie had portrayed police up until that point. Well, let me tell you, as a uh, so first of all, I, I generally agree with your point of view on the ending here. That I, I, in my opinion, they kept it ambiguous as to whether the far right agitators were cops or not. We saw a, a Celtic cross tattoo on the back of one of their necks, uh, the back of your neck being a place where you can pretty easily conceal a tattoo if you want. And uh, I think you and I have both heard stories of members of the poli- of various police departments being identified as not only members of, of explicitly neo-Nazi groups, uh, but also members of organizations that started off with a respectable face. Um, and I'm talking here about the Proud Boys. I'm talking here about the Oath Keepers. And when I say respectable, I don't mean I, at any point I ever respected these groups. These groups were were there to they were there to beat up left wing protesters. They were there to start fights. They were there to uh, generally uh, support the uh, the Republican political establishment. In many cases, acting as bodyguards for the likes of Roger Stone and other Republican political. There's fixers. nothing more American than beating up left wing protesters. Well, that is true. Uh, it's not specifically American though, as we learned in this film. But uh, I was reminded of when the. Uh, when the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers were an almost weekly presence in the city of Portland, just to our south here in the Pacific Northwest, and a number of stories came out about the police, the Portland PD, exchanging text messages with the leaders of the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, uh, talking about police movements in advance, and generally just taking a hands-off policy to violence initiated by right-wing protesters or right-wing agitators who were there to cause violence, who showed up there with weapons and then used those weapons on people as the cops stood by and did nothing and ultimately it was revealed that uh, that you know that the 
that various members of the police force were texting back and forth with those leaders, were were letting them know in advance what they were going to be doing, making sure like, hey, you know, stay on this side of the line so we, we don't want to arrest any of your boys, really just acting kind of buddy-buddy with them. And of course, the Oath Keepers themselves have thousands of members in law enforcement across this country. So, uh, and their leader, Stuart Rhodes, is currently on trial for seditious conspiracy for his involvement in the January 6th riots. So I, I came out of the, so I was a little bit baffled by this fellow on Twitter who, and of course he, Perfectly valid read on that ending there to say that the purpose of that scene was to exonerate the cops. Uh, given this sympathetic portrayal of Jerome uh, as uh, as this this cop slash hostage over the course of the film, um, it is perfectly fine to come out of that that scene thinking this was meant to say this was not the cops or this were just a couple of bad cops, um, just a couple of bad apples. And it wasn't necessary. I didn't see it that way. I, I, I kind of agree it wasn't necessary, and I don't really know what it added, but I think that telling us that the cops and the far right are inextricably linked and cannot be easily separated from each other, I think helped cement the movie's point. I don't think it detracted from it. Yeah, I think it's common knowledge that the far right supports the police state because they're part of it. <laughs> like it's, it's part of the point of the police thing is to keep marginalized groups marginalized and keep left-wing protesters bloodied and beaten up and, and silent. Yeah. That's and, the point. And as long as they don't go too far at disrupting existing power structures, they get to keep doing all of that. And as right. they learned with January 6th, they did go too far and are now in a position to be scapegoated because there are even more powerful people like Donald Trump that absolutely must be let off the hook here. And for that to, for that to occur, we have to make sure that his biggest, loudest, dumbest, most violent supporters go to prison for a respectably long time. Uh, while the uh, while the money brokers, while the power brokers uh, get to keep doing their bullshit behind the scenes. Yeah, well, well, welcome to world history. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what the brown shirts are for, Daniel. <laughs> Is to fuck shit up in the streets on behalf of people who can't be bothered to get their hands dirty. Now, now keep in mind, during that time period, commun- the communists also had their own, you know, uh, paramilitary folks. And they, all, they had of brawls course. in the streets. And it was, it was a time. Yep. The right wing does tend to be better armed and better supported by right wing uh, governments that are trying to take over. They are better at it. Yes, that's true. So, yeah, they tend to they tend to run militia training camps and the like. But um, but yeah, I think other than that ending, I don't really have much to say about the uh, about the other major plot developments in this film, except to say, wow, they should not have switched Sebastian on. <laughs> that guy only has one speed, and it's one hundred percent. Yeah, he's he should sure escalate things. <laughs> I, I thought that the, the brothers falling apart was it was good character development for sure, but they they just felt very superficial. Like I represent this aspect of French society, I represent this aspect of it, and I guess that's fine because the movie's not a million hours long and it's trying to tell a pretty straightforward story. I just wasn't that emotionally invested in them. I think Jerome because he's like the you know he doesn't seem like a bad guy and he's just like a really difficult situation we're supposed to feel sympathetic towards him that well, dude i have i have thought because i was looking for a reason for that final scene to exist i have thought we were going to find out jerome was one of the cops that had killed uh, yeah that would have been that would have been a twist and then like he, he circles back to him and he's like winking at the camera 
That would have also been pretty stupid, though. I was prepared for that to happen, but I, I like, what are the odds of them happening to grab their brother's killer out of yeah, the right. cops? It, it just would have been kind of dumb. I think of the two brother or of the brothers, uh, Abdel and Kareem probably had the most co- uh, complete and coherent character arcs among them because Kareem starts out at the height of his uh, uh, of his 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 power, basically at the height of his character arc. It, it, I mean, he was. He was angry before this movie began, and we see him when he is absolutely seething with fucking rage, and he is organized, and he is ready to fuck up the entire city if it brings his brother's killer to justice. And to the extent that we see him express any emotion about his dead brother, I mean, it's devastating. It's clear that this affected him in a major way, but it's also clear that this gave him permission to do something he was somewhat inclined to do in the first place. Whereas Abdel is... He's a little older. He's a little more responsible. He's also a little more connected with the establishment. He he feels as if this police state represents him to some degree. And watching him kind of peel those layers off of himself and realize, okay, I've got to go in there and I've got to take care of my family. Um, and watching kind of how that escalates over the course, this was really something to see. And Dolly Benshaw, who plays Abdel, is quite good at expressing all of that. Yeah, I don't, I don't really have a whole lot to add. I, I can hate the ending. I, I felt like it was a little bit of a... It was ambiguous. So I thought it was a little bit of a cop out, just because I didn't think it was needed, you know. Because it does like that guy on Twitter or a person on Twitter. I don't agree with them, but I can see how you can come to that point of view. And I don't think that if you want to avoid like discussion points like that or avoid opinions like that, maybe maybe that scene wasn't necessary. Yeah, or if you're going to leave it ambiguous, just uh, rather, if you're going to include that scene, give a definitive answer. And if you're going to leave it ambiguous, leave that scene out entirely. I think I would have been fine without it, but I was kind of fine with it as well. I think making it clear that because what that what that solidifies is that a deer was not killed by cops who maybe thought they were justified in the moment. And uh, sim- and subsequently covered it up, like what happened with Laquan McDonald in Chicago, for instance. That was a clear example of bad apple cops being covered by additional bad apples who covered them at every step of the way. Prior to that point, we could have assumed that this was a case of the cops just covering up their dirty laundry like they always do. Whereas with that ending, what we learn is, okay, these cops, these specific people, whether they were cops or not, were malicious. They killed this kid. Be- uh, they killed this kid because they hated him. They killed this kid because they wanted to cause trouble. It, it, it exemplifies that it was an act of malice that caused this story to occur in the first place. And I think that is an important detail, even if the exact circumstances of that malice are still left ambiguous. All right. Well, Daniel, any final thoughts about the film? I think it's definitely a must-watch, uh, just from the cinematography alone and the and the soundtrack. Like you get the vibe. The vibe is uncut gems in Paris with, you know, the barricades. You know, it, it's it's very intense. There's some good acting, and it. it's it's a thrill to watch. Like it, it zips by. Uh, the, the duration of the film uh, zips by pretty quickly. And yeah, it's, it's, it's never dull. Gems. Like it's, even it's even only... the quiet moments are not dull. <laughs> Yeah, most definitely. And even the quiet moments are ready to explode with activity at any moment here. Uh, the movie's an hour and 37 minutes. It's uh, it's definitely a, uh, a leaner uh, cut than Uncut Gems, which I love Uncut Gems, but I was definitely gritting my teeth for a similar percentage of the of the movie uh, with, with Athena as I was with that one. So, Well, Athena is streaming on Netflix now. You can check it out anytime. And now on to a review of the 2021 film from director Chakram Mokri, and that film is Careless Crime. Welcome to Paris. 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 Welcome to Paris.
That was from the trailer of Careless Crime, the 2021 film from director Shakhar Mokri, uh, from, written by Mokri and Nassim Akmanpour. And uh, this film stars Baba Karimi and an assortment of other Iranian actors. I will not butcher all of their names here, but Baba Karimi we previously saw in Fish and Cat, which was Shakaram Mokri's previous film. Uh, that was a film featuring a bunch of events and happenings surrounding a kite tournament on a lake outside of Tehran, uh, where a serial killer may or may not be stalking the place. And also there are all these other little stories going on as the camera follows along in what seems to be a single uninterrupted shot. This film, Careless Crime, is about a real-life incident that occurred right on the eve of the 1979 Iranian Revolution, uh, in which a cinema, the Cinema Rex, uh, was set on fire deliberately uh, by four arsonists um, who were never identified. Uh, in real life, they were never identified. Uh, they doused the movie... Er, they doused the movie theater in gasoline and aviation fuel, and they uh, they lit the place on fire, and hundreds of people died. And the protests that ensued following this incident ultimately boiled up and over into what became the uh, the revolution that gave birth to the Islamic Republic of Iran that we know today, and the overthrow of uh, of the Shah, who was himself a you know a Western backed puppet who was uh, who. Uh, had you know we'd overthrown somebody else in the first place to uh, put him in power. Um, so by we I mean the CIA. This is all pretty well established history. I don't feel like I'm going in crazy leftist mode by bringing this stuff up. Um, but uh, but basically that uh, that detail of the pre-revolutionary uh, time in Iran, as well as this fire, was all new information to me. But this movie is very much not a documentary. It is more like a Mobius strip of interlocking timelines that take place both in 79 as we're following the arsonists going into the theater and plotting their their foul deed, uh, as well as in the present day as uh, we're as we're seeing students and workers outside of a modern theater uh, staging an anniversary screening. There's also a museum that talks about the fire itself. So we learn all about this. So. What I'm going to say from the beginning here is we are not going to be doing a spoiler section for this movie because, Daniel, I don't even imagine how we would be able to spoil this movie if we tried. Spoil- there is a fire. Yeah, spoiler, there's a fire. Yeah, and the the ways in which this one event uh, kind of, I guess, shattered reality and caused all of these timelines to intersect with each other is kind of the journey that is this film. And this is very much a case of it being more about the journey than the destination, uh, which is why this film is, you know, it's over two hours long and it features many scenes that repeat from various perspectives as we learn more and more about what's going on there. And it presents this fire as this kind of this kind of multi-layered, somewhat ambiguous thing, and some of that is because of the gaps of uh, gaps in knowledge in the actual historical record, and some of that is clearly because of the the director's desire to showcase multiple perspectives here to say that this this massive and impactful event that had this major effect on this country and changed it forever came about through a series of accidents as well as a series of deliberate choices and as tehran is burning once again in protest uh i I did not mean for this movie to connect thematically quite so much with athena but history has moved in the last few weeks here 
With the death in the custody of the morality police of uh, a 22-year-old Iranian woman named Masa Amini, um, who was arrested for not wearing proper hijab, not not maintaining proper modesty as dictated by the Islamic uh, laws that are in place in this in this country, uh, she was arrested. She was taken into custody, and she died in custody under mysterious circumstances. And of course. Daniel, as an American, once again, I'm forced to watch real events playing out in Iran and think to myself, fucking hell, they have the same problems that we do. You know, whether we're talking about Freddie Gray or Sandra Bland or any number of other people who were taken into police custody and ended up dead, uh, whether we're talking about the ones whose names we know or the innumerable thousands who die by suicide inside county jails because they're not receiving adequate mental health treatment, because they are being put into a box and ignored when they are going through a moment of crisis or because they are simply being abused by the by the awesome power of the state. Now, I don't know what happened to Masa Amini and I don't think most of the people protesting know either, but what they do know is that woman should not have been in should not have been in a jail cell at all for violating a law that they deem to be unjust and that is what is going on in Iran right now is that country's people being forced to grapple with the fact that there are a large number of people, particularly young people, who do not want to live under the yoke of Islamic fundamentalism any longer. And that is what is going on right now. And that was very much on my mind as I watched this movie, which was made a year and a half ago before any of this happened. So, Daniel, I'm very curious what was going through your head watching this film. I'm assuming you've been following some of what's been going on in Iran right now. Yeah, of course. Uh, I felt, you know, honestly, I just felt bad for the Pavlovi you know, dynasty. Like, oh, what a way to go out. Like, here they are. They've been running the country since the 20s. They're doing a halfway decent job. And then you have this collection of constitutionalists and Marxists and Islamists. And they all gather together and they ruin a good thing. It really just. I'm sorry. Who was ruining what here? The arsonists or. uh, Yes, the arsonists ruined the theater screening of the deer. They ruined that one proprietor's great idea of putting more seats into the theater, more seats than could actually fit because there's sanctions and now things are more expensive. You know, if it's inflation is the problem. That's the, that's, that's the problem with the world today. Yeah, the, the arsonists are interesting because we follow them around and one of them one of them is named, and his name is Takbali, and we follow him around. But of course, we see him in the present day visiting the museum of the fire that he caused, and then in the in the and then forty years earlier, we see him walking around as one of the arsonists as well. It's the same guy. Um, it's him. It's Persian Sean Connery, and it's two other guys, and um, and they're they're just idly talking about what they're planning on doing here, and. It's obvious they are motivated by Islamic fundamentalism to some degree. They're motivated by these indecent, decadent, Western-influenced uh, students who are trying to celebrate uh, this this aspect of Iranian culture that they don't approve of because they're they're old and conservative. But it also somewhat presents this arson as something that came about because these guys were fucking idiots that they had. And, and this is all speculation, of course. This was not. But three of the arsonists did die in the perpetration of this act that, you know, three of them didn't make it out. One of them did and eventually went on trial and was executed. Well, it turns out when you remove the handles from the doors and it's barricaded on the other side, it's difficult to leave the building. Well, and and the interesting thing about it is the movie actually presents some semi-innocent explanations for that state of things as well, because all the details we learn about this, uh, about this event, about this this horrific fire, um, presented as this beautifully, carefully planned slaughter of innocent people. And the way the movie presents it, 
yeah, it kind of was that, but also these guys wouldn't have gone back inside if they didn't think they had a way out. So they expected everybody to go streaming out of there. They thought they were just, I mean, somewhat similar to uh, to what uh, Kareem was doing at the beginning of Athena. They thought they were just chucking a Molotov cocktail that was going to cause a bunch of people to flee the scene and not catch fire and, you know, get third degree burns over most of their body. They certainly are presented here, at least, as thinking they were not perpetrating a mass slaughter and an act of terrorism here. And looking at the historical record of this crime, it doesn't seem like that is all that merited. It definitely seems like the slaughter was the point. Yes, of course it was. I mean, if they really wanted to preserve human life, they would have burned the theater down when there wasn't a screening taking place. Yeah, I mean, the... uh I'm reminded of a movie uh, from uh, England called Four Lions, which is about a group of of Al-Qaeda-affiliated terrorists who are plotting to bomb a parade in in London. And that movie is a dark comedy. And it is a dark comedy because it presents these terrorists as not the sharpest tools in the shed. Um, it was it was made by this British comedian who had heard about all these stories of... And, you know, they're, we've, we've seen these stories because they always make international news of... You know, terrorists who were ill-equipped, blowing themselves up with RPGs they don't know how to use. Uh, there was a story uh, in uh, there was a story in Moscow of a group of bombers who were plotting to bomb Red Square. Uh, you know, when New Year's celebrations were going to be taking place there, and one of them had his bomb detonated prematurely uh, by a Happy New Year text that went out uh, to every cell phone on the. On, on the Beeline network that was over there, uh, caused the phone to go off early, caused the bomb to go off early. I mean, we make um, light of those situations because it makes us feel better, right, about the danger in the world of people that would do those things. Oh, yeah, they're just lets idiots, us, you know, they're, they're going to It lets us up. not think too hard about their motivations. It lets us not think too hard about what we would do under the same circumstances. And well, I know what I would it's do. Not, I would have protected the shop. Well, if it were me, I certainly wouldn't have set a movie theater on fire. That seems pretty basic. You are not dousing walls of a building that you are fucking in with gasoline and then going back inside as your buddy sets that building on fire. That's just not a good idea. Yeah, uh, I think. What else do we have? We we have. Sorry, go ahead. The film itself. Uh, I'll be honest with you. I love Fish and Cat. Fish and Cat's a great film. I thought this film was too much of the journey. We were journeying and journeying, and I got bored. I, 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 it was Chekhov's arson. I just wanted to get to the fire, and all the film talk, I got bored with it, and I stopped caring about halfway through. I was like, just, just get to the, t- you know, wibbly wobbly, timey wimey, just get to the arson, and I just don't get there. And I'm like, God, get to the arson. I don't, I don't care about the the bomb that's in the middle of the desert and the, the film within the film the film within the film lost me I guess wasn't interesting on it yeah at one point we see Elham uh, I think I think that was her name a college age girl who is in, going to the theater on a date with a fellow named Ali who is her fedora clad uh, you know hipster date who loves uh, festival movies they even talk about hey is this going to be one of those movies that's got the uh, that's got the like the fleur de lis or the uh, uh, you know it's got the it's got those uh, I don't remember what exactly they said it was but basically something that indicates it's a festival film um, that was almost the movie sort of calling itself out that it was uh, with the laurel symbol before it that's what they called it in the subtitles um, and I, I found that kind of amusing but I also thought that you know self-awareness only takes you so far I'm inclined to agree with you Daniel I found this movie especially the first act kind of a slog I definitely wrote multiple times in my notes what the fuck is all of this for and 
Like with Fish and Cat, I expected that I was not going to understand all of it all the time, and more of it did come into focus and make sense over the course of it, because a lot of a lot of the point of these scenes is to see what seemed to be unimportant moments and unimportant interactions that all of a sudden we realize, oh, there was more going on in that scene than we realized, or that, you know, oh, this was happening at the same time as this other thing, um, and that, that lends additional significance to it in retrospect. But that said... I thought it dragged. I thought its pace was kind of indulgent. And I thought that, you know, there were multiple scenes that just lasted way too long. There's a scene where, uh, where I think it was Elham again was there with, was arriving at the theater with her mom and her mom is trying to parallel park and they're smacking into the vehicle behind them and having an art, an argument about where her mom is going on a date. And like, none of this shit matters. It's just, it's not important at all. I like um, for Elham's story. I, I did like the, she was trying to deliver the posters and she just couldn't do it until out, do one it. hour, 38 minutes into the movie. That is when she finally unloads. Like, that was minutes. amusing, but uh, like the, the rotating scene, uh, in the, um, when they're going to show the film out in the, in the woods, uh, yeah. for, for the, uh, for the deer, uh, as a, as a, uh, a revival of the film, it went on way too long. Like just, uh, it, it was well done. Like I, I was impressed yeah, by how the they did it, it but. All the stuff at Broom Spring, which is this outdoor location where this outdoor oddball screening slash camping trip of the movie is happening for reasons that are not at all clear, where like a an old missile has landed, but we're not sure if that happened 40 years ago or last week. And it's it, it seems to kind of be the center of where the, the split in time is happening here. I almost felt like I was watching Donnie Darko a little bit here, whereas we see the missile streaking across the sky toward the end of the film. I'm like, oh, maybe that's the moment that broke time. <laughs> like, oh, man. It's never really explained. It's never really spelled out. And I don't really think any explanation would satisfy me because it doesn't trouble to be consistent. It ju- it's just like all these events are happening at the same time as each other and also 40 years ago and also now. And they're all intertwined and we're all you know we we live in a society daniel and that society was was split into pieces by this event and if we all watch the movie enough times it'll make sense to us i'm not going to say that i was bored by the movie in its entirety but i de- it definitely it, it dragged uh, i wrote down in my notes that i really enjoyed the first 30 minutes or so with uh talk Bali trying to get his anxiety meds and going through the museum and also learning about the uh the, the arson itself because i immediately googled that because i i I wasn't familiar with it. Like I knew about the Iranian revolution, but I didn't know what the spark was. And, and so I, I was, you know, watching the movie and then also on Wikipedia, <laughs> like, Oh wow. Okay. Like, yeah. I, I'll, I'll admit I did that too. Mostly because I wanted to, I, I, it's, it's always tricky when we're dealing with, uh, with these films where the information on IMDb might not be accurate a hundred percent or the information on Wikipedia might not be complete at all. So, uh, we, so in order to just keep track of who everybody was, I found myself pausing, looking up actors faces and just making sure that I had the correct character names and, and actor names for my notes, but also looking up information about the, the, cinema rex fire now that said the movie gives you everything that you need to know about the cinema rex fire at the beginning we literally see like pages from prosecutions and court records and investigative files and it all it all flashes past pretty quick but it gives you all the information that you have to have right i I wanted one i wanted to know if this was an actual historical event and then i want extra context yeah, I, I knew going in that it was a real historical event. They, uh, the, the press uh, office that was representing this film, because it, it's new on, on VOD right now, along with Fish and Cat and one other film by, by Mokri, uh, for the first time available in the United States um, uh, on American platforms as well. Uh, so you can go and rent this movie right now if, it's, uh, if it strikes your fancy. But uh, Daniel, I guess uh, 
Any final thoughts about the film? What did you think of it? Do you think people would enjoy this or should check it out? So this is a hard, hard one to recommend because I, I really enjoyed the format of Fish and Cat, but the timey-wimey stuff, it's really hit or miss with people. Like I think a lot of film goers would have a hard time with this um, just because there isn't a whole lot of – it's all journey, right? So there isn't a whole lot of payoff yeah. for anything. And repeating the same scene over and over and following different characters is neat the first time you see it. Uh, but the whole movie's like that. And I think it would be kind of tedious for people who aren't expecting that or, or enjoy that sort of format. So I, I think I think it's like a – it's a cautious recommendation. It's one of those, if the movie was a little bit trimmed, like it was like, like the runtime was a little bit uh, snipped a little bit. And I'm not saying like an hour, 30 minutes. I'm saying a little bit less than the two hours and 20 something minutes that was maybe it's an easier pill to swallow, but it's a historical event that most people don't know about, which in, in that regard, you should watch just to learn about it. But at the same time, after the first 30 minutes, you kind of got all the information you need. <laughs> and the rest of the movie is kind of a slog. I wouldn't necessarily go that far because I think that this movie reminds me in some ways of uh, I saw the comparison to Alfred Hitchcock in the press notes for this. They were trying to get they're really trying to get me to think about Vertigo and other films that uh, that kind of present an ambiguous narrative. Vertigo is much more coherent than this film. I thought they were really reaching with that comparison. But the idea that there is all this unresolved tension because we know this fire is, is is happening, did happen, will always happen in this theater, that any of these people are in danger. I think to some degree, the inner, the all the timey-wimey stuff takes a bit of the air out of that. But at the same time, we know that at any time, somebody's going to start dousing the walls with gasoline and setting all of this ablaze. But we never see and it. And that... We, we certainly see them getting it started, but uh, but we also see this scene where we know these guys are there to plot burning down the very theater they are in, and we see one of them go to the bathroom in an effort to set the walls on fire because they've apparently already soaked them with paint thinner, uh, and we see a guy accompany his child to the bathroom, and he's just standing there by the sink waiting for this guy and his kid to go back into the auditorium. And we don't know what their attitude is in relation to the fire. We don't know what they think is going to happen here. So we're watching a guy coldly and mercilessly calculate murdering the two people in the room with him so that they will die horrifically in flames, as we know happens to hundreds of people. And that tension that is hanging over that scene is brilliantly executed. And there are multiple moments like that in the film where you're just like, all these people are fucking doomed and they have no idea. And I think there there were enough moments like that to make it so that even, even though there were scenes that dragged on and felt like a bit of a slog, there were enough scenes uh, that held my interest because of that tension that ultimately I was not bored with the film by the end of it. I just thought it could have been a little bit shorter. I don't know. You, you could lose the whole scene of the captain tugging the magic rope to get the item. Like, who cares? <laughs> Yeah, I have to admit, Daniel, that that sequence, uh, in terms of interpreting subtext and metaphor, defeated me. I I've, I really don't have any idea what the Broom Spring stuff was about. There, there may just be a cultural touchstone that we just don't have being Americans watching this film with an external perspective. Um, I think there's definitely a disconnect between generations that we're meant to understand there, a disconnect between men and women uh, as, as represented in this society, a disconnect between people in their official capacity and civilians. But 
whatever it was, it was very nonspecific, and uh, it, it it was ultimately just not there in the text of the film, at least not for me. We should have had a scene where the Shah is like giving bread to the people, and then like you know you have a Komini like in the background is seething with rage. I think that would have been good. <laughs> this is not going to be the movie to bail out the Shah, Daniel. <laughs> we can make that film. I mean, the show was fine, dude. He got he, got, he he fled the country. He ended up in the United States, where I think he died of cancer. Like he he went back to he went back to where his actual bosses were. <sighs> yeah, that's <laughs> sad. That's sad when someone. Yeah, has just to because leave. we don't approve of what the Islamic Republic of Iran has done in the intervening years, does not mean they were wrong about the Shah being a Western puppet. Like that's absolutely what he was. Well, sure, but I mean, you replace them with another monarch. You don't replace them with a cleric. Come on. Clerics yeah. aren't even a good yeah. class in D&D anymore. <laughs> well, it remains to be seen what's going to happen next. We've seen a number of revolutions happen uh, throughout the Middle East over the last decade or so, and most of them have not come to much except increased crackdowns by the governments involved. Yeah, Libya worked and that out. maybe what we end up seeing here. But we also don't know how strong the Iranian government is anymore. So it's hard hard to say. We you know You, you never know when history is happening until... Well, yeah, history history is backwards looking. You look backwards to anticipate events and explain events in the future, and it's what you do. You don't know about it until it's already passed. Like, we're we're doing history right now. So maybe this film, which is uh, trying to understand this event, which presumably has a significant meaning in iran a meaning that is not there for me i mean this is i'm trying to trying to imagine like the 9-11 version of this film or something similarly formative you know pearl harbor for, for in terms of how how it speaks to the american national identity in such a significant way we have that film it's called titanic <laughs> titanic is not a it's not about an american ship no but, but americans died on that ship it was going to america that's true. America was there. Uh, America was 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 around. The ship that rescued them was called No oh, Carpathia. Carpathia. I went from California, but no, it wasn't that. All right, we're not talking about Titanic again on this podcast, Daniel. Not for at least three more episodes. The Titanic one of sunk the Shaw. All right. Any final thoughts about this film? It's a cautious watch. I think it really depends on if if you like that style and are interested in in the uh, time period. It's, I didn't dislike watching it. I, I'm being a little bit harsh, but it's definitely a bit of a slog. Uh, yeah, I would agree with that. I think that, um, like all of Iranian cinema, it offers an interesting look at the country of Iran. And we we watch these films because we are so interested in in watching these perspectives, in watching um, you know what we can learn about this country that is a world apart and a system of government apart and a religion apart from what is considered mainstream in the United States and yet has so many similarities and really sympathetic qualities that we keep seeing um, as we examine it through this cultural lens. And that is why we keep coming back to these films and these filmmakers. And I, you know, I would say that if that is a desire that speaks to you in some way, uh, this is a film that I think you would at least find interesting. Um, even if it's a movie that you're really going to want to pay close attention to and uh, you know expect it to confuse you for a significant chunk of its runtime well that was our review of careless crime and uh, it is available for rent on apple tv plus and amazon prime video and now on to our review of the senegalese neo-western film saloon le ciné saloon la meilleure des planques pour des mercenaires en cavale Trois jours ici, et tout le monde nous aura oubliés. On se connaît. 
gardé un, un très bon souvenir de cet endroit. Quelqu'un joue à nous la mettre. Qu'est-ce qui vous amène dans notre magnifique région du Sinsalou Éducation et culture. That was from the trailer of Saloum, a film which is advertised at the beginning as Unsouthern de Jean-Luc Herbelot. And Jean-Luc Herbelot is a Congolese filmmaker, and he calls the movie a Southern, not a Western. Which, as the movie goes on, it makes it very clear that this is a movie that is very aware of its uh, of its American uh, Western genre influences, but is still very much trying to be its own thing. Um, it features a trio of guys that are known as the Hyenas of Bengui. They are mercenaries. They are Shaka, Rafa, and Minwi. Uh, Minwi is midnight in French. That's how I had that pronunciation so uh, readily available. And these three guys we initially see presiding over a pile of civilian bodies all lying dead on the floor uh, amid a military coup in in Guinea-Bissau uh, in West Africa. And... We learn that this happened in 2003. We learn that uh, the military declares a coup d'etat, pledges to restore order. Their target is the international drug trade, which is bad news for pushers unless you have an escape plan. And enter the hyenas of Bangui, who are there to rescue and extricate both a pile of gold and a Mexican drug lord, uh, played by Renaud Farah. Uh, his name is, uh, is Felipe. Uh, no, sorry, his name is Felix. He uses the alias Felipe at one point. Uh, he is a drug lord, full on, like full on tracksuit wearing drug lord. And these guys have been hired to spirit him away uh, to Dakar, Senegal, the coastal port city that is also the capital of Senegal, where they are from, so that he can escape this military coup that is uh, targeting the drug trade. And these three guys are. We don't know what their level of responsibility is for the pile of dead bodies at the beginning, and the movie keeps that nice and ambiguous for much of its runtime. Uh, so these guys in establish their anti-heroic bona fides immediately because we learn uh, we learn through the way people react with, to them that they have a reputation, and that reputation is badasses and heroes. So, Daniel, I'll put it to you. As these guys find themselves in unexpected territory in Sin Saloum, which is this river delta area, not quite all the way to Dakar, about two, about 350 kilometers away from it, or about a three-hour car ride away from it, they might as well be on the moon uh, because their, their plane is out of fuel, it has been sabotaged, and they are staying at this little co-op hotel, trying to preserve their alias, trying to lie low, trying to avoid the attention of the national police as they find their way to where they're trying to go with their drug lord and with their gold. So, Daniel, what did you think of this film? This film is one heck of a roller coaster. I, a thing I thought was good. I thought I think it was, it was a good film. I enjoyed it. I thought the vibe was very intense. I thought Careless Crime was a little bit of a slog, but I liked some aspects of, of the cinematography and what they did with the timey-wimey stuff. But boy, oh boy, did I like Saloon. <laughs> I dug it. I, Jan Gael as Shaka is such a badass. His performance is excellent. He is so fun to watch. And there's a scene, talk about intense, there's a scene where they're at the camp and they're having dinner and there's a sign language conversation that oh, yeah. is <laughs> so well done and there's oh and and shaka has an absolute friendly smile on his face as he is having this conversation with the character of awa who is a mysterious woman uh, played by evelyn illy juen uh, who is uh, she is deaf and mute and she speaks uh, sign language and 
we learn that both Shaka and Rafa, played by Roger Salah, also speak sign language, which Rafa doesn't trouble to reveal until the end of that scene, but he was following that whole conversation too. And they hand wave that away because in the gold mines, you apparently communicate any way you can, uh, which includes sign language um, at, at a distance. So these guys, like this, the conversation that is playing out in that scene is just a brilliant piece of tension building. Oh, like, it's, it's great. And I was hooked. Like I was unsure about where the movie was going. Like that first scene, like, are they the bad guys? Are they like, are they heroes? It's, un- it's unclear as to whether or not they're responsible for all those deaths. Um, you know, Felix threatens them in, in the, uh, in the airplane, which just seemed foolish, right? Like, Right. Yeah. Like he, yeah. These, you threaten these guys. What happens is Minwe blows magical dust in your face and you pass out. Yeah. I like the magical dust. Uh, this film was so much fun to watch. It's so the pace is so crazy. And some of the twists that come later in the film are so unexpected. I went into this film knowing nothing about it other than it was a West Af- West African film. And I had a great time. <laughs> Yeah, I, I knew this film was regarded as a neo-Western, and this will be the second Western film that we have seen out of the African continent before, the first one being uh, The Five Fingers from Marseille, uh, which came out of South Africa. And that was another one that took place in the present day, but used that sort of frontier, lawless, anti-heroic mentality to tell a story that is very specific to the time and place in which it takes place, um, which is post-colonial, which is amid resource extraction and poverty, which is with a backdrop of, you know, ATVs and airplanes and cars exist in this world, but you've still got these people with a gun at their side and some sort of some sort of ethos in their heart, just trying to do the best they can to accomplish goals which we may or may not agree with. And that is what the movie presents here. And these three guys, uh, Shaka, played by Jan Gael, Rafa, played by Raja Salah, and Minwi, played by Mentor Ba, These guys are so comfortable as these characters. They are so clear in the dynamic that they have with each other and who they represent within the group, what their skills are, and what they mean to each other that that's really really all you need going into a movie like this i immediately get these guys even if i if, even if i'm not sure everything they're about even if i'm not sure if i'm gonna agree with what they're trying to accomplish or or but i was on board i was ready to tell this story these guys were immediate protagonist material as soon as we met them they, uh, particularly shaka they're a very well balanced trio and and i think like there's a lot of uh, camaraderie between the three of them, like they complement each other well, and their skill sets and their and like just their the different looks that they have. Like each each of the three of them has such a presence they bring to the character, and they're it's very distinctive. Each each like it's very clear as to who Shaka is and who you know Rafa is and and Mingui. Like they're they're their own entities. Like they could have their own one off like adventure film and it would make sense. But like Yeah, it, which when you're watching an ensemble western like the Magnificent Seven or The Good, the Bad and the Ugly, you you want characters. You want multiple characters that are established with that much detail. And that is clearly another way in which this movie clearly understood its influences. It was like we need these guys to be legends individually and collectively before this movie begins. And it it pulls that off. I thought uh, Awa was also a great character because I mean, what a what a play! Like you know, she's like, not only do I know who you are, but I'm coming with you, right? <laughs> and like instantly, the movie is it's going a certain way. Like, like that opening scene is, is harrowing. We get to the town. We're not really sure like if the town is safe or not. It feels very. Uh, 
you know, walking dead, right? Like, we're like, well, is this place safe or not? And at a certain point, it's going to be revealed that the most evil shit imaginable is happening (laughs) here, and we're going to have to kill everybody and escape. That's walking dead in a nutshell. Exactly. But, like, Awa's, like, not only... She she hasn't pegged from the get-go. I know exactly who you three are, and I'll expose you unless you take me with you. Not only did she have them pegged, but all of a sudden, she feels like the most dangerous person in this camp. And she is mysterious. We don't know what she's about. We don't know what she stands for, but we know she wants something. And she knows we know that she is potentially going to be in a position to demand these guys give it to her. And that is really something to see. Um, there's a police captain right there as well, Captain Suleiman Fali, known as Suli, who is just there on vacation. So we've got this tension about their real identities and the fact that they are presumably wanted for a mass slaughter in Guinea-Bissau, uh, as well as this gold heist and the the extradition of this guy we don't know what the police are after them for we don't know what they know about their level of involvement we don't know any of it but we know that it could go pear-shaped real quick yeah it's it's such a fun ride and i guess like we can't really talk too much more until we get the spoilers but i had a great time watching it i've been watching another movie with these three (laughs) yeah there are it's a very interesting environment. It's a very interesting uh, location. And the very the various secondary locations there also feel very lived in. Because as you try to figure out what exactly is going on around this uh, Labaobao co-op hotel and what exactly Omar and and uh, his right-hand man Salomon's game are there, uh, what are they up to? What are they doing there? It seems like they're just running a co-op hotel where if you stay if you stay there, you pay for your stay by doing chores. Yeah, it's very Airbnb. Take care of the place. But uh, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Um, and, and he's got an assortment of weird artists there. Uh, we got these people, Yuse and Sephora, who are they're an ex couple, but they're still artistic collaborators. Uh, Rafa at one point disappears somewhat ominously, but it turns out he was just off fucking Sephora all night, so that was a nice detail. Um, of all the of all the three in the group, Rafa definitely seemed like the one who you're like this guy fucks obviously mm-hmm. the three of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Whereas Shaka just kind of wears Ray-Bans and seems very, very haunted. And uh, Minwi is, uh, is, you know, he's the guy who's got his shit together and he's got the sleepy dust, but, you know, he's also not to be trifled with. Um, so, yeah, you really just kind of, you really just kind of jump in uh, on a ride with these guys and just to, just to see where it's going. And, yeah, where it's going will surprise you. But it will surprise you in a way that does not feel like... It doesn't feel like it's out of nowhere. It feels like the movie suddenly telling you, no, this is the movie you've been watching the whole time. You just didn't realize it. And I love it when a movie can pull something like that off. There's a scene where Shaka's, uh, he's exchanging uh, like a war stories, uh, like at least like campaigns that he's participated in. And he, uh, with the uh, proprietor of the place, Omar, and he's just, he's all over the continent. And it really gives you a sense of scope of like Africa is just so, so uh, deep in recovery, you know, for, uh, you know, colonialism, right? Like it's just all these, all these little wars all over this giant continent. Yeah. And Shaka's covered in brush fires, many of which we've stoked on purpose for our own purposes or, you know, other countries have stoked for their own purposes. Is there any movie you won't get on your leftist soapbox for? Well, Daniel, I didn't mean for these movies to be so thematically connected this week. They all have a theme of they all begin with violent revolution in some way. In this case, it was a military coup that we knew nothing about going into this. But you know me, I'm only for royalist revolutions. I don't, I don't, I don't care about. So you were on board with that coup d'état at the beginning in uh, in uh, Guinea-Bissau, even knowing so little about it. Because it was the government uh, going after the drug dealers there. 
Drugs are insidious and they ruin lives, Glenn. And do you want more ruined lives in Africa? Is that what you're saying? Oh, it seems pretty clear that the movie is not presenting the international drug trade as a good thing. It, it definitely full on establishes that like child soldiers high on crack cocaine are part of the backdrop of this film. But uh, again, for more of that, we're going to need to talk uh, talk more about that in spoilers here. But but this movie is now streaming on Shutter, and you should absolutely check it out. I thought this movie was an absolute ride um it is uh it is us adding another country uh to our list of countries that we have seen movies from i have never seen a senegalese film before and i was so pleased to to just learn something about the about the cinema of this country it's just one it's just one entry it's not even by a senegalese filmmaker uh but it is it it gives me another piece of the of this world that i had no idea about and it tells this this story that is at once familiar but also completely unknown to me and goes in all these different directions that i wasn't expecting and uh, it is just an absolute ride and you should absolutely check it out i read uh, afterwards uh, an article about about this film and basically the author was saying yeah this is this is basically west african film like if you show this to people they'll get a good sense as to like what it's all about well, it's, it's good. I mean, it's good to hear that uh, somebody from the region is uh, is summing it up in that way. Of course, I take that with a grain of salt as well, because there are any number of American films that you could watch, and you would get a sense of America from those films, but it would not be an accurate sense of every detail of America. So I'm looking at this as just one little dimension Ooh, of this sure. place, but it's still a very interesting dimension of this place. So. Yeah, everyone knows American Pie defines America in the 90s to a T. Yes, it does. All right, well, from here on out, spoilers for Saloon. So I'm going to, even though we just played our usual spoiler warning here, I'm just going to emphasize this is a movie that goes some very unexpected places by the end. So uh, you do not want to listen to this segment unless you have seen the entire film, because these moments are worth experiencing uh, for all the shock that we experienced them with. So we learn three things in rapid succession here. <laughs> One, we learn that Shaka knows omar the proprietor of Lababao co-op hotel that he was once a child soldier under the command of that guy who was known at the time as colonel remington for the american steel pistol that he carried around and for all the horrific things that he did to the child soldiers that were in his employ or whatever we call this under his thrall we learn this as shaka is exchanging war stories with him at the uh, table. And by the way, Daniel, that was some beautiful, uh, that was a beautiful discussion of that scene without revealing the spoiler. Bravo on that. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of these moments where we realize, Oh, there is a connection between these guys. Oh, that connection runs deep. Oh shit. He just shot Omar dead right across <laughs> the dinner table. And, yeah, that's we, very quickly and that's when film. we learn the third thing. And the third thing is that Omar was guarding a gate to hell. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's like, what, what is going on now? There are demons? Fantastic. All yeah. right. And all of a the, sudden, we're forced, the, we're forced to revisit all of these things that we saw him doing. He was counting birds. He was delivering supplies to the Diolas who were in, the, in these villages along, uh, along the Saloom River. 
and we're forced to wonder, like, what was all this for? What is this guy doing? What was this guy into that he was holding this flock of fucking demons at bay? And I'm not speaking figuratively here. They literally get swarmed by demons, and Felix the drug dealer immediately gets covered in black veins and fucking dies. The uh, the assistant, Omar's assistant, uh, Solomon. cackling, Salomon, yeah. Salomon, uh, cackling with laughter uh, by saying, like, you know, it's, you it's have starting. no idea. Yeah, it's starting. You have no idea what you've done. And I was just like, what, what is, what is this escalation? <laughs> right, right. And, and again, it is, and I have to praise the movie for executing this so beautifully because we had no idea this was going in this direction. We had no idea there was anything supernatural going on in this film. And when it happens, it doesn't feel like it comes out of nowhere. It feels like it follows everything that came before. Like this is the natural end of all this violence and depravity that has been slowly unfolding over the course of the film. And holy hell, from that point on, it's a fucking zombie chase movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, the demons do look a little silly, but they're still terrifying because you have to have ear protection. It's the opposite of a, that one film where you go, you know, cover your eyes. Oh, uh, Bird Box. Yeah. Bird I mean, of Box, course, there was yeah. a quiet place also where you had to be really quiet. But all these ones that mess with your senses in some way or you have to hide from the baddies. But it seemed like the, the demons couldn't see them either. But if they do see you, they'll attack you and take your ears. They'll take your senses one by one. Um, and it was right. it was really something. Uh, it's pretty fucking gross when it happens. But yeah, I, I agree. The CG was a little hokey, but like. It was still it pretty. Was fine. It was still pretty fucking scary. I'll I'll give it that. I mean, just the the ramp up of you know, we get to the village. You know, uh, Alan knows about uh, who they are. To Omar's reveal as to like who he is. To demons, like it, it's the beats escalate so quickly. Well, but it all is tethered together in such a way that you know, like like you said, it makes sense. Like you don't feel like it's silly. Or I, it's a little silly, but you don't feel like it's, it's unearned. Well, I also and skipped past can't. the second reveal there. So the first reveal was that Shaka knows Omar. The second reveal was that Shaka caused their plane to land prematurely on purpose. He is responsible for them being there. He sabotaged their planes. So they would have to land there, which means he roped his best friends and his his you know partners in crime and his companions in warfare into this situation into this situation without telling them what was up beforehand. So this amounts to a significant betrayal of his best friends here and a betrayal that is never really addressed because they go from one crisis to another after that point and they just have to deal with the aftermath of it. And it's really quite something to see. We're not just watching the formation of this group. We're watching its disillusion and we're watching the end of this character, Shaka, who quite literally, as rendered on screen, never really left this place. You know, we saw him escaping as a child and being dragged under the water. And then we see that's what happens to him as an adult as well. And, you know, it's it's a metaphor that doesn't doesn't linger. It doesn't it doesn't wear out its welcome, but makes it pretty clear this guy was always headed to this location. And to the extent that he ever connected with these guys, they they didn't realize they were walking with a marked man until right then. And what a reveal that is. Yeah, we, we talk about uh, careless crime uh, being he, everyone's doomed, right, in the theater. But Shaka was doomed the second he tried. He, he left, you know, that, that village the first time as a kid. He was he was doomed. Yeah. 
And it was, you know, he, he went off and he joined up with these two guys and he perpetrated all this violence across the continent. And we hear, we hear what Awa has to say about that. We hear that these guys are lauded as heroes. We hear that they, they got the, uh, the RUF out of Freetown in Sierra Leone. Those were the, uh, that was, that was the revolutionary group for, uh, that was featured in the movie Blood Diamond. Uh, and, you know, other, other little connections to bits of West African history that I know just the tiniest little bits about. They referenced a bunch of other things that I did not know about at all, but that was, that was the one that I remember was the RUF at Sierra Leone. Um, but we hear about these guys as folk heroes and we know that multiple people within this camp know who they are and know why they're there and know what they're up to. So these guys must be well known. The idea that uh, you can never meet your heroes, the idea that your heroes are never quite what you expect, the idea that this guy cultivated this folk hero reputation while dealing with the ghosts of his own past, which he's forced to confront quite literally by the end of this film, is really something to see. The fact that he has such a hard time traveling over water, like, reminded me of Mr. T from The A-Team, where he was afraid of airplanes. Ha. And they had to knock him out every time they put him in an airplane. <laughs> I did not know that about Mr. T and the A-Team. That's that's interesting. Of course, the first yeah. time we see Minwe putting him out before he goes on the boat, we don't know what that's about or why he's doing it. So I was exactly. like, wait, is he not allowed to know where they're going? Like, what's the deal here? But, yeah, it was unclear. I, I was like, oh, is that so they could get past the authorities? But that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And, but they keep it vague, and and it's eventually revealed why why they're doing that. Toward the end, as Rafa is forcing him onto the boat after Minwe is already dead, uh, having used his spiritual powers to try to hold the the evil spirits at bay, and ultimately his friends have to sacrifice him to make that work. And it's one of these things where we don't know what's going on in that scene, but the three guys who were featured in it know exactly what the fuck's going on. Minwi mm-hmm. knows what he's doing, and the other two guys know what's necessary. And as soon as they do it, we're like, oh, okay, he was like taking the demons into himself, and they were trying to they were trying to kill him before he turned or something like that. He was holding like, like whatever was going on there, they knew what was up, and they knew what needed to be done. And it's still shocking in the moment when it happens. Yeah, I, I didn't quite understand what was happening in the moment, but it, it became clear like he was using his uh, his uh, unspecified magic spirit powers. Yeah, yeah, he was using his oracle powers or his, his uh, sage powers or whatever you want to call it, and he was somehow either trapping the demons or somehow defeating them in some vague way. But it, but to do so took his life energy. Yeah, what he says, uh, he has this little monologue at the end. He says, I'm holding them. And we see the de- the demons swirling around his head. And he says, now that you're here, I will not leave defeated. Together till the end, I'll see you soon. And that told me that he was telling them, I can't leave this place. Holding them at bay yeah. is already going to cost me my life. You guys just need to finish me off so they don't rip me to pieces. And that's that's what I took it as. It's kind of like that moment in the zombie movie where, you know, the character heroically sacrifices themselves, but they get bitten. So their buddies, you know, shoot him in the head to finish him off. That's what I sort of took it as. Um, but it is pretty vague in the moment. Uh, but it also doesn't matter. Like the, it's the two of them doing that forehead embrace. It's them. T- it's them mm-hmm. leaning in and, and, you know, all for one, one for all kind of moment. And it's really fucking sad when it happens. So. Uh, well, Daniel, that's about all I have here. This movie is absolutely one you should check out. It's an unfamiliar place and group of people, but it will ultimately, it will all the same feel familiar to anybody who has seen the canon of the American Western. And to see that canon expanded into a different time and place is absolutely worth exploring. And this movie 
does not feel like homework as it's doing that. It is an absolute thrill ride, and and it is as good a western as it is a supernatural horror film as well. And it is impressive to see a movie execute so well on both of those genres at the same time. Yeah, I agree. It, it was a ton of fun, and uh, of the three movies, my favorite that we saw this week. All right. Well, you heard it from Daniel. This is his favorite of uh, of this week. So, Daniel, two hundred episodes of the Film Long Podcast. What you think? We're gonna do yeah, two hundred more. I suppose we would. I think. I think of all the two hundred episodes, I've given a ten out of ten, like once. Yeah, I think so. Lawrence I mean, of Arabia got I, one of those. But we'll, Lawrence we'll come, of Arabia. We'll come back to it. I think we we've we revisited this previously on the tenth anniversary podcast. So. Yeah, I just don't give movies that very high score. I think my average, if you were tallying them all up, is like a six point five. <laughs> well, that is why I will never tally them up, Daniel. That would force me to grapple with uh, the ways in which my own scoring is uh, is fairly cons- both consistent and inconsistent because I always score a movie on the basis of how well I think it executed on what it was attempting to do and also to some degree whether I liked what it was attempting to do. So it's, it's, it's sort of a nebulous mix. It makes it impossible to compare the score for one movie to another. A 7 out of 10 for one movie might mean something completely different from a 7 out of 10 to another, which uh, I think some people would say makes me a bit of a hack. But 200 episodes in, I, I think I'm beyond caring about that. Um, we're just a couple of fucking guys and these are our opinions about movies and we definitely try to we try to learn uh we try to learn more we try to expand our horizons and that is what we will keep doing as this podcast continues and daniel it has been an absolute pleasure doing all these episodes with you likewise all right well that brings us to the end of our discussion of saloon if you have any feedback on our discussion of any of these three films uh please feel free to email us at filmwonknet at gmail.com and those films were athena on netflix careless crime available for rent on on apple tv plus and amazon prime video and saloon available on shutter Thank you for tuning in at filmwonk.net. Thank you for listening along with us all these years, if you have indeed been doing that. And if this is your very first episode, welcome. And uh, please check out our back catalog. Thank you for tuning in at filmwonk.net, and have a good night. (laughs) 